Esther chapter number 4. And um, I think rather than read the entirety of, of the chapter, we'll, um, as we go through, we'll, we'll, we'll tackle each portion as it comes. But just to give you a little bit of a recap of where we're at in the narrative here of Esther, we're almost halfway through um, 10 chapters, and we're at chapter number 4 here. If you remember chapter number one, we were introduced to uh, King Xerxes, Azarus, and his actions in terms of Vashti, his wife, and the way he treated her, and uh, that resulted then moving on into um, chapter number uh, two there, one and two, that there was a great beauty pageant to go and find another that could replace uh, Vashti because the king has he's, he's having all these banquets because he's courting support. He's courting support from his officials, from uh, the nations and the people around him because he wants to go to war against uh, Greece. And off he goes in the war. The war goes very badly. He comes back, licking his wounds a little bit, and he misses Vashti. So he's looking for another queen. And in chapter um, 2 we find that things are going pretty well for um, Esther and Mordecai, who were introduced to, uh, how they were promoted, really. Uh, Mordecai to the king's gate. Esther, we know, is selected to this position of uh, queen. Uh, Chapter number three, we're then introduced to the protagonist, or the antagonist, really, of the plot, in uh, Haman. And we saw that darkness was rising. And um, really, we get to the... The end of chapter number three, where we left it last uh, Sunday evening, and I want to read you from verse 15 there, which says, this is in the relation to Haman's plot. Remember, he's an Amalekite, a distant relation from Agag. He wants to exterminate the Jews. He's gone to the king. The king's agreed it according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which means it cannot be changed once it's said. And then in verse 15, it says, The posts went out, being hastened by the king's commandment, and the decree was given in Shushan the palace. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city Shushan was perplexed. And I said to you how that this darkness had risen, uh, got responsible for this horrific and horrendous decree that Jews, man, woman and child was to be exterminated, to be wiped out from the face of the earth, such as the hatred of the enemy of God for the people of God. Now this is what we see today, this morning, that's what's on your news, I want you to understand that. Say, oh this is just a battle about a bit of land, no, 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 no. It's not a battle about a bit of land. Land is involved and is often used as the argument. But the battle is won between God's people, elect to privilege, that's Israel, chosen by God, whenever, and then you go back to the, the ancestor, this is Isaac and Ishmael, it goes all the way back to Genesis, where Ishmael was superseded, if you like. For the blessing that was poured out upon Isaac, the privilege that became Isaac, Jacob, the nation of Israel, to be the keeper of the oracles of God, to be the one that was blessed. And Ishmael wasn't. It's a family feud that goes all the way back. And it's one of hatred. And the simple thing is, and this quote has been said and, and said many times, if, if, if the enemies of Israel put down their guns today... There would be peace in the Middle East. If Israel put down their guns today, they would be pushed into the sea to never be seen again. Such is the hatred. But it's not new. It's not new. And in Esther chapter 3, we see this, this anti-Semitism, this uh, anger against God's people. And I pointed to you last time around that this really comes from the one that sits at the top of the pyramid of power in this kingdom of evil, and that's Satan himself. You understand that this is a spiritual battle against the people of God that has raged from the beginning and continues to. That behind this is the God of this world. Chapter 3 of Esther, Haman comes to power out of nowhere and he brings with him this desire to exterminate the Jews. Mordecai won't bow, but I mean, really, what is that compared to the lives of an entire nation of people? 
So verse 15 leaves us with this thought that, you know, the people of the city were perplexed. But the king and Haman sat down to drink. Just not even bothered about what they have actually put in place. Not just one life, not just two lives, but thousands and thousands of lives are due to be um, wiped from the face of the earth in about 11 months' time from when this edict goes out. But, but, God, but God. Israel would have been gone a long time ago, but God, but God. And what we're going to see in chapter number four is that all these things are in place and all the wicked plans of human minds and uh, evil minds and only Satan's mind cannot trump the plans and purposes of a sovereign God who has been moving in this situation ever before this situation occurred. Israel's under attack, but God's hand is with them. He's brought them back into the land. He's gathering them in according to those prophecies. Why? Because his hand is upon them. You know, um, if you look at Israel, the times that it's been tacked, certainly since it's been back in the, in, in the land, um, you will see the miraculous hand of God, the finger of God is what they call it, where, where they have been outnumbered, and yet God has wrought victory. It's no different that we read all these stories in the Old Testament. God is there, even when he can't see him there. And what we're going to see as we get into the, the, these, these parts of the book of Esther, we're going to see God showing all the things that he's put in place, proving his sovereignty and his, 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 his presence and his provision, even for these people who indeed had got themselves into captivity because of their rebellion and their wickedness, because of their uh, spiritual adultery. You read Jeremiah. I told you I was reading Jeremiah at the minute. and You know, it, it's hard going. Stiff-necked people is what they're called, Israel. And they are stiff-necked people. But we're stiff-necked people. We're full of pride. We're full of rebellion. God gives us clear mandates and we ignore them and go our own ways and do our own things. We're no different. And what unites us in Israel is not our goodness, it's not our greatness, but it's the faithfulness of the God that stands over the promises that he's given to us. And I love when we get this because now is the time where God is going to show us why he has Esther where he has her. Why Mordecai is in the place that he's in. Why God is, is allowing this um, events to happen that ultimately he can move in and, and, and get involved in a thing that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians is done and it's dusted. There's no hope in any earthly things. But there's hope in God. He's in the midst. He's in the midst. Now is the time we're going to see Why? Esther is where she is. So let's get into the text. Let's uh, uh, go through it. And here's the first thing. Verses 1 to f- uh, f- uh, 3. Sorry, I don't think this is verse 1 to 5. Verse 1 to 3. It says 1 to 5 up there. Ignore that. Verse 1 to 3. I've told you I only do these mistakes. Do you know why I do these mistakes? So you know these slides are my own, right? So you can't say he's copied them from somewhere. They're not their main. That's why they've got mistakes in them, right? <laughs> Anyway, you're kind. It's Pastor Appreciation Day. So give me a break. Right? Uh, verse number one there of God's word. Let's, let's read that. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes, put on sackcloth with ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. And came even before the king's gate, For none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So here we have this 
mourning that's taking place, certainly amongst the people as the news goes out and the decree goes out that they're to be wiped out, they're to be exterminated. You know, imagine getting a letter in the post from the government today to say that in 11 months' time, the army's going to come in and they're going to shoot your family, each one of them dead, bullet to the head, gone. So that there's not one member of Milton Baptist Church left in Stoke-on-Trent. Horrific. But this isn't just one member of Milton Baptist Church. This isn't just one family. This is an nation. Terrific. Terrific. And there's a mourning going on. And, and what we, we see in the, in the text as we get a little bit later on is that Esther is, is unaware of these events. Why? Because she's the queen. She's in the queen's court in terms of, you know, she's surrounded by women, the harem. She's separated from these events. She's walking in the, in, in the courts of power and what's going on out there in the midst of the common folk hasn't reached her. And, you know, I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking, you know what I so like? People in power today. So disconnected from what's going on. So disconnected from the decisions that they make and the effect that it has on the common folk. You know, we heard it said before, those that sit in the ivory towers and look down. And we think about their, you know, even our own government, the litany of mistakes that they've made. We're talking about it at lunchtime, just thinking uh, over COVID and all this money they just threw and then wondered where it was going to come from. And now they're telling us, if you're reading the news, now you're going to start paying higher taxes than you ever paid before. Why? You're paying for all this money that they've thrown around. Dine out to eat out or whatever it was, just throwing money down the wall. Who's paying for that? Us. Us. But they don't care. Rishi Sunak with his investments and companies, with his family that's up to their, um, you know, full of money, loaded. But what's it like on the street? What's it like for the person that goes to the shop? And I don't know about you, I'm just looking at it and, and seeing prices go like this. Petrol, have you seen that? Woo, here we go. You follow the money back to those that sit in the boards and the companies, and I'll not name them in case they sue me, but all these companies, and they sit and you read in the news that they're getting millions of pound bonuses, profits are up there. What's going on? Disconnect. And Esther, she's oblivious. But Mordecai is aware. And because Mordecai, Mordecai is the man that's made to stand. Mordecai is the one that's committed to stand. And he is in mourning. Says that he came, verse 2, every night before the king's gate. Verse 1 tells us he's clothed with sackcloth and ashes. This is mourning. He's in grief. He's in agony. Anguish is a better word. Because his people's lives are on the line. And he's nowhere to go. What does he do but to cry out unto God? And those that seen Mordecai would know that what he was doing would be connected with mourning and grief. You see this throughout the Old Testament in, in, in the Jews and in others that sackcloth and ashes, um, times of mourning or grief or even deep repentance this happens. Sure there's many in Israel tonight, today even that in their heart they're clothed with sackcloth and ashes. They're in mourning for their people. Deep grief. And here you notice Mordecai is doing this. He's, he's, he's no longer hiding anything about him from his cultural and spiritual and religious background. None of it. Remember last chapter he'd revealed that he was a Jew. Now, you know, Mordecai's gone nuts. And here he's, 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 he's there for all to see in Shushan, all to see in the palace. He's a Jew. Not ashamed of who he is. He's out there. He's putting it all in the line. And I think there's a spiritual lesson for us in this when we think about this. Because up until this point, certainly towards the last chapter, Mordecai's been very cautious about who he is, right? Because he's playing the political games and things are going not too bad. 
Then there comes a little stumbling block in the way and he starts to reveal, to his credit, he starts to reveal who he is. Now he's at the point of no return. He's facing extermination. He's nothing to lose. And because he's nothing to lose, now he's standing in front of the king's gate. And part of this is he's trying to get Esther's attention. He can't go into the, the palace area. He can only go as far as the, uh, uh, the gate. And he's going there, I believe, in the intention that people will see him. But also somehow some message will get back to Esther. Because he knows Esther has the ear of the king. But he's got to this point where you could say he is living his Jewishness to the fullest. There's nothing hidden. But what has it taken for him to get to that point? And when I think about Mordecai, I'm like, you know, you can get into the ethics and morals that God's working in this. And he's an expert of bringing good out of bad. I told you that, didn't I? But that doesn't mean that Mordecai's actions were right to hide who he was. But now he's not hiding it. Now he's all in. And the spiritual application and lesson I take from this is is how I see my own life, and maybe you'll see this too, that we come to the point where we're all in with God when we're all out with the world. That we'll throw ourselves into our Christian faith and our identity in Christ whenever Everything else has been tried and failed and we've got nowhere to go. And all of a sudden we want to fling ourselves at Jesus. Say, oh, I'm a Christian now. Lord, where are you? Why does it take that? and, And this is rhetorical, honestly, rhetorical. I could sit here in this room by myself and talk to myself in this way. Why does it take for me to be at my wit's end before I throw myself truly, fully into my faith? Why? But this is it's nothing new under the sun. And we wonder why God allows these things in our lives at times. Not all of it, but you just wonder and think, God looks at us and goes, what is it with these people? Why do they need to be brought to the end of themselves every time? To fling themselves upon me. You know, I've said this before in church, and I want you to hear me, church. At no point, hear me, at no point are you ever in control. No point. At no point do you not need God. At no point is this world not too much for you. We just fool ourselves and we think that it is because things look like they're all right. But ultimately, everything we have, we are, we will be, rests in the hands of a sovereign God. So we should live our lives in that point all the time. Thankful, rejoicing, blessed, secure and worshipping. But we know what we do, don't we? We drift away and then the hard times come and we're back in it. Right, I better get to church. <laughs> better start reading the Bible. <laughs> now I need Jesus. Get over that. We're okay, Lord. You can take a back seat for a while. Such a nonsense. We're never in control. You know? Who in Israel thought two days ago they would wake up to the intensity of an onslaught of terrorists, of Hamas, and that's what they are, terrorists. Don't listen to the BBC that calls them militants. They're terrorists. Very specific language. Entering in to their land and killing and destroying and taking Israelis away to be tortured. None of them. I think Israel thought, you know, all right, 
our military is good. We've got our Iron Dome system. We, we've got uh, the best, one of the best intelligence services in the world. Our intel is up to date. We're okay. We just don't know what tomorrow brings. But God does. But why do we have to get to this point where we cry out to God because things are in a mess? Why can we not cry out to God when things are good? Why do we have to have things that bring anguish in our hearts to point us to Jesus? I wish it wasn't so. But here, Mordecai, he's going for it. There's nothing left to lose. Who cares? People know he's a Jew now. So he's at the gate. Remember I told you the gate is a position of all this judicial stuff. It's a, it's a hot point in the city, in the palace. But he can't go any further. And he's mourning, and the people of Israel are mourning. They're fasting, they're weeping, they're wailing. Many laying sackcloth and ashes. They're desperate for God, is what they are. So verses 1 to 3, there's a mourning, Mordecai, and indeed the people. And then, oh, come on, clicker. <laughs> Don't do this to it. Why? Come on, one more time. <laughs> uh, can somebody go? Can you flick that on for me, one Ben, in the in the room there? I don't know why that's not working. Technology, honestly. Verses four to fourteen tells us that there was an informing. Let's read from verse number four. So here. We have verse 4 and informing. So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it her. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved. And she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away a sackcloth from him, but he received it not. Then called Esther for Hatak, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. So here we're, we're, we're told that there's no communication between Esther and Mordecai up until this point. He can't get to her. She's kind of oblivious of what's going on. She's grieved exceedingly when she finds out what is going on. Uh, verse 4 and verse 5, she gets one of the king's chamberlains to take a message to Mordecai. Verse 6, so Hatak went forth to Mordecai onto the street of the city which was before the king's gate. And Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him and the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasurers for the Jews to destroy them. Also he gave them a copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them and to show it to Esther and declare unto her and to charge her that she should go into the king to make supplication unto him and to make request before him for her people. So here we, here we see that Esther doesn't have a clue about what's going on. Completely shielded from this. No idea of what's happening at all so what Mordecai does is he tells this king's chamberlain Hatak he tells her about the money that Mordecai's promised or, or Haman's promised sorry he tells her about the plot and um, he gives her a copy of the decree that mean that shows us that he does have some position of authority within the king's gate he gives her a written copy of the decree to prove it sends this uh, message to uh, Esther, that she's to go into the king to make supplication, to come before the king to plead for the people of God. Verse number nine, the messenger comes, tells Esther, and then we have Esther's response in verse number 10. And when we read Esther's response, you can read it one of two ways. You can read it that she's trying to cop out of this responsibility. Or you can read it that she's simply going through what this involves. She's talking it through uh, with Mordecai by means of a messenger. So the problem here, and again this is a little side application really, is, is you're going through the, the, the means and the mode of a messenger. That it's a message being passed back and forward by the king's chamberlain. 
And what happens when we use messages by any medium other than our own mouths is it's hard at times to judge intent or feeling behind what's written. This is one of the downsides. There are many downsides, but this is one of the downsides about text messaging or emails even. Sometimes it's very hard to judge the tone of a written message. That's why we put the wee emojis. Now, some of you will go, emojis? I have no idea what that is. That's fair enough. But for others, you'll write something and then you'll put a wee face, smiley face, to say, I'm saying this with a smiley face. This is a happy thing that I'm saying to you. You know, it adds a bit of emotion to the writing. So, you know, people, people use it. But sometimes, you know, you just write emails or letters and they can get misunderstood. The intent isn't caught. The emotion behind it isn't caught. I don't know if you've been in work. Maybe you've got a work email and, you know, somebody's maybe in a rush and they've sent you an email and asked you to do something. They haven't any time to do it, but it's an urgent request. They put it in an email and saying that you get it and you, you read it and you go, that's a bit cheeky. No thank you, no please, etc., etc., etc. So here we've got to give a little bit of giving and, and take between these two because it's hard to transfer uh, emotion across a messenger. But that's what's going on. And what uh, Esther does there in verse number 10 is she gives the message back to uh, Hitak. He's to take it back to Mordecai. So no doubt he's getting fed up with this. Oh, here we go, back, back again. Verse 11. This is what Esther says. All the king's servants, the people of the king's provinces, do know that whatsoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king to the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he might live. But I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. So here's Esther's response. She lays out the protocol. That you can't just come before the king. You can't just walk in there. To come before the king if you're not called is death. And only if the king will hold out the golden scepter... Will you escape with your life? Now, this is a beautiful picture of the gospel of the King of Kings that you cannot come before God except through Jesus Christ puts out the scepter of the gospel for you. That you may come boldly before the throne of grace. That's the gospel change. But to come before God without being called, to come before God without being uh, asked meant death. Come before this ruler meant the exact same thing. So Esther is telling Mordecai whether she's trying to cop out or whether she's just telling them, this is the, you know what you're asking, this is what it means. Doesn't necessarily mean she's trying to get out of it. We can sometimes add that in there. Because ultimately we're going to see that she does go and she does show tremendous courage. So personally, I don't think verses 10 and 11 are an evasion. I think it's simply an explanation. I don't think it's an excuse, but a plea to Mordecai to give her some guidance. Yes, she has a position of influence. Yes, she's the queen, but these are the laws. If I go in here and the king's having a bad day, I'm going to die. Mordecai replies, verse 13, when he gets the message. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. So what's he tell her first of all? He says, look, Esther, it's not simply your life, it's all our lives. And regardless of whether you do this or not, we're all going to die. You're a Jew. The decree's been made. In 11th months, we are going to die. Then, verse 14, there's this beautiful reminder. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, 
Then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. What's he saying? God is sovereign. Esther, if it's not you, it'll be somebody else. If you hold your peace, if you stay there and say nothing, God's going to use somebody else. But he's going to go on and remind her that actually God didn't want to use somebody else. That Mordecai can see that she is where she is in the sovereign hand of God to be the person that steps in the vessel that God is going to use to deliver his people once again. So what is Mordecai doing here? He's really showing faith in the Abrahamic covenant. The promises that were given to Abraham and by extension Isaac, Jacob and the children of Israel were promises from God, unconditional. Let's do a little lesson in English. What does unconditional mean? It means there's no conditions. Well done. Why do we have to say that? Because there are people that will try and teach today that an unconditional covenant actually has conditions. But that's what people teach. That actually Israel forfeited the right to that covenant. And they have been replaced in that covenant by the church. Like we're far more obedient than Israel are. What a nonsense. Think Israel failed? What about the church? Israel didn't have the full counsel of the oracles of God. Didn't. We do. Israel did not have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We do. Now you want to talk about that we can do better? He has given much. He's expected much. Church has failed. Israel has failed. But our promises, just like Israel's promises, do not depend on us. That is works. That is conditions. The Abrahamic covenant given to Israel, given to God's people, is based on his uh, testimony, his character, his holiness, his promises, and nothing to do with man. That's why we can read the passages that we read this morning that all Israel will be saved. That's why you can look in Jeremiah and talk about the new covenant. Why? Because God is faithful when man is not. And Mordecai knows that if Esther doesn't do it, God is going to get somebody else up. Why? Because he has promises to that people. And if that people are wiped from the map, the promises of God fail. And if the promises of God fail, God falls. Because who is God that he can lie? He's holy and righteous. There is no lie in God's mouth. Just truth. Eternal. Unwavering. Unchanging. Truth. So Mordecai says, look, Esther, if you're not going to do this, God is going to bring up somebody else. God is going to raise somebody up. That's what he says there. For if thou altogether hold thy peace at this time, then shall enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And here we are. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Mordecai reminds her that ultimately if she does nothing, she's going to die anyway. He reminds her that if she doesn't do anything, God is going to use somebody else instead. And then thirdly, he reminds her that she's not there by accident. That the events that have placed her there are not an accident. And he gives the immortal line, They are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What is Mordecai saying simply to Esther? He is saying simply this. 
Now is the time. Now is the time. It's time to act. It's time to make your stand. Don't leave it to somebody else. You know, the pastor's joke is that his most faithful member in the church is somebody else. Because it's always somebody else that will do the work. Oh, I'll not do it. Somebody else will do that. But let me tell you, somebody else has got a lot in his plate. He needs a break. <laughs> Maybe it's you that's being called to something this evening. Maybe you're in a position in your work, in your sphere of influence, around the people that you love that are lost for such a time as this. Maybe God has you where you are for a reason and for a purpose. Maybe you've got something to do. may not be easy, but maybe God has something for you. What is it? Where are you with it? Are you looking for it? Are you searching for it? Are you walking about in your life and going, God, what have you hit me here for? Who have you hit me here for? Because God always has his plans and his purposes for each and every one of us. I absolutely believe that. God's not a respecter of persons. He doesn't just have plans for one person and none for the next. Each and every one of us, he has something, and I absolutely believe it. But how often do we leave it to somebody else? Do we miss giving God the glory, serving him and blessing him? By shirking our responsibilities, not taking the opportunities, and not walking through the doors when God opens them. One of the things I was told when I get into ministry is that if God opens a door, walk through it. God opens the door, walk through it. Fortunately, we don't walk through the doors that God opens a lot of the times and try to open doors ourselves and make doors and make ways that God never intended. But when God opens a door, walk through it. Walk through it. So there's a morning, there's an informant, and then finally... There's a conforming, verses 15 to 17. I've got my numbers all wrong there. Verse 15. So Esther bade them return to Mordecai this answer. She says this. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Sushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day, I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and I so will go unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. So here we have the Jewish people have corporately together entered into a period of fasting and mourning and anguish. They are crying out to God. And I love what Esther says. You know, she's stealing herself for what's ahead, but she doesn't go without God. Before she goes, now it would have been very easy, would it not? Let's put ourselves in Esther's place. Right, okay, Mordecai. I know what I've got to do. I'm here for such a time as this. I've got to go before the king. And I've got to say to the king, you can't do this to my people. I'm here for this reason. My people are going to die. The easiest thing for her to do would be in the flesh to simply run to the king. And say, king, spare my people. But she doesn't. She says, Mordecai, get the people together people in Shushan and we're going to fast and we're going to pray and we're going to get on our knees to God like our lives depend on it because they did before she ever goes before the king now what a spiritual lesson that is church that we just want to run in and fix things we want to charge into the battle without God I've been challenged recently, let me share this with you, about my ministry and how there are so many things that I want to do 
for God's good and for God's glory. So many things. In the church, with the young people, the shine group, small groups, community, outreach, so many things. And honestly, I'm in a place, I've been in a place recently where my head's spinning. Because there's so many things to do. We call it spinning plates. As a pastor, you're always spinning plates. I was sharing this with somebody, and I'm aware that if you're a bit younger, that this is not as popular as it was whenever, you know, there was two channels on TV and, you know, we used to watch people on TV doing magic tricks such as pulling the sheet away from the... I don't think kids are as entertained by that stuff, but do you know what I mean when I talk about spinning plates? Yeah? Any, any plate spinners in here? No? Should have got some. And they spin it on a little... I mean, it's... You know, it's not going to light up the world for kids today. Like, come watch this guy spin... But when I was younger, I was like, oh, he's amazing. He'd spin one plate... And he'd spin another plate, and he'd spin another plate, another plate, and he would add them all, and then he would have to go back to the one that he started, give it a wee spin, keep it going. That's what I feel pastor is. And I'm always spinning plates. And so, you know, I'm, I'm like, Lord, what? show me what you want me to do here, because I don't know what door is the one you're opening, and what door I'm trying to open. I do so much for God. And I get a phone call, video call, from a pastor in Romania. I haven't spoke to him face to face in two or three years since COVID. You know, messages, WhatsApp, but video call, spending time. I haven't spoke with him. Anyway, so he video calls me and, and we start to talk and he says, How's it going, ministry? And I'm like, Oh, spinning plates. You know, inside joke. And then he starts to talk. He said, Well, you know, I, I can only tell you what. The Lord has ministered to me this week that on Sunday in the church in Romania they had a retired pastor that came in and uh, preached for them. And he'd been in ministry 30, 40 years, whatever, retired. And he came and he preached and he preached an Acts and he actually preached an Acts on the selecting of deacons. And the reason that the deacons were selected is because there were so many things to do for God that the disciples, apostles, elders, whatever you want to say, were just overwhelmed. And what happened was they selected deacons to serve, to help, so that they could devote themselves to 50 other different... No. Two things. What? Prayer and teaching. Preaching and prayer if we want to do the peace. And this retired pastor, he says, I look back at my ministry and I look down all those years and he says that he looks at them and he goes, I wasted so much time not doing those things. Preaching the word of God and praying for the people of God. Not as a bolt on, not as a tag, but fervently, daily praying for the people and teaching the people. And he looks back at his life and he said, I did, this was his words, and this is what spoke to me. I said, I did many things for God, but not enough with God. How often do we try and do so many things for God, but not with him? I mean, this is the story of Mary and Martha. And we miss it. We miss it. Now we all have our callings. Each of that's different before the Lord. But for me as a pastor, I'm being honest that, you know, I just want to run in and fix this and run in and fix that. And actually, the word of God and, and this, you know, message from God, it was clear to me, speaking to me, that just saying, Kevin, do what I've called you to do well. And do it with me. So my question to you is, Esther here, she doesn't run into it. She doesn't do it for God. She's doing it with God. She cries out. She's looking for what? What the Jews want. Talked about it this morning. Provision and presence of God. Before she ever goes before that king. I think there's a lesson there for us. 
Maybe a lesson there for you tonight. If you're just busy about the things of God, just examine what are you doing with God as opposed to what you're doing for him. This is the great unimaginable truth that it means to be a Christian. That God doesn't need anything from you. But he wants to work in and through you. It's amazing. It's amazing. He desires to have your fellowship and your presence with him. So here, Mordecai and Esther, you know, they're, they're, they're going for it now. No subterfuge, no lies, no, no other stuff. They're in this now. Up to their neck, in their identity, who they are. And once again, they are together and they are reaching out for the God of their forefathers. The God that delivered them out of Egypt. The God that made them those promises all those years ago. They're clinging to him. You know, just mindful once again of this, this concept that why does it take adversity to bring us to unity? Why? Israel, perfect example. You know, now, you know, I grew up in Northern Ireland, and Northern Irish politics is complicated. And then you look at Jewish politics, and it's on another level of complication. They're divided. But not today. Why? Adversity brings them together. The main things are the main things. And the adversity has brought the people of God, the Jews, Mordecai and Esther, to the place where they're crying out to God. They're unified in that. So as we wrap this up, and we'll, we'll finish now, What's the conclusion? Well, from the human point of view in Esther chapter 4, the the people are in a world of trouble. I mean, everything's against Esther. I want you to think about this before next week when we get into chapter 5. Everything is against Esther. What do I mean by that? The law was against her. Right? She just told you that. Nobody's allowed to interrupt the king. Also, law of the Medes and the Persians. Once the king said it, can't be redacted, changed, stopped, altered. <coughs> Laws against her. The government's against her, really. Because the decree is the Jewish people are to be slain. That's not a friendly government. Her sex was against her. Why? We've seen the king. He's a chauvinist pig. He didn't care for women. Look at he done the fast time. The officers of the court were against her. They're the ones that had ratted on Mordecai. Why? Because they're cozying up to Haman. So the odds of success from a human point of view view, were slim. And again, take the spiritual application. From a human point of view, the odds of success were slim. But the reality was they were closer to God than they'd ever been. And here's the spiritual lesson for us. Our safety does not depend on our distance from danger. It depends on our closeness to God. Let me say it again. Our safety does not depend on our distance from danger. It depends on our closeness to God. Because when you are close to God, when you are abiding in him, you're in the center of the storm, that's the safest place that you can be. Even though human eyes would be deceived. Why? Because that's where God is and that's where he wants you to be. So the reality was for these people that they were safer than they'd been. Two, three, four years before when it looked like there was peace about. Why? Because they are in the presence of God. They are seeking him daily. They are throwing themselves before him, crying out to him and understanding there's nothing they can do to save themselves and that they need God to intervene in their situation. This is gospel truth. That humans are lost without God. But God. This is what it's taken. 
for these people to turn and cry out on the God. What's it take for us? To humble ourselves before our holy God and cry out for his mercy. What does it take? We are a stiff-necked people. Proud. Thinking we've got it. It's under control. Thinking we can sort things ourselves. And the reality is that we need God each and every moment of each and every day. That we are totally lost without him. But the message of this message is now is the time. And Mordecai has challenged Esther and said... God has brought you to this place for such a time as this. Now is the time. Now is the time to stand up. Go to God. Throw yourself before him, but do what you are there to do. Don't retreat and run away. Stand up. Now, if that's not a message for us today, we are here because God has put us here. What is God calling us to do? To stand up in a world that wants to trample all over us and trample all over the gospel and quieten us and shush us and put us in a corner. I believe we're here for such a time as this. Now is the time, church. But what is God calling you to? Where is God calling you? What is he calling you to? How is he calling you to it? And ultimately, are you responding to what he has for you? I absolutely believe each and every one of you, God has a plan for you. First and foremost, he wants you all to be saved. If you don't know him as your saviour, that's what he wants. That's what he's calling for. Number two, if you're saved, he wants you to serve. Not so you're in favour, but so that he can work through you for such a time as this. Let's pray.